This morning, uh, as you can see, we're, we're going to be in the book of Jude, um, and so if you'd like to turn there, uh, and Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, right before Revelation. It's a little uh, tiny letter that packs a big punch, and so we're going to be uh, going through this entire book um, over the next three weeks, and uh, by God's grace, we're going to um, mine the truths that are here and, uh, by God's grace, apply them to our lives. So, as the sermon series uh, implies, we are going to be talking about contending for the faith, and we're going to talk about contending for the faith against uh, apostates who infiltrate and attack the gospel message and the church. Now, we're going to use these two terms a lot over the next three weeks, contending for the faith and apostates, and so as a way of introduction, let me uh, see if we can define these terms to have a better understanding. Uh, the first one is to contend for the faith, and it means to defend the truth continually and vigorously. The word that Jude uses here for contend is the same word we get our English word to agonize over. And so that's the idea that, that Christian fervor over preserving the gospel message should, should even be to the point of agony. So the truth that we are to defend continually, continually and vigorously is, is the very word of God. It's, it's the, the message that's been handed down through the apostles over the years and has now come to us in the form of the Bible, God's holy word. And, and more specifically, uh, the truth is the gospel message, that, that Jesus came to be born as a man, became the God-man, uh, lived a perfect life, died and rose again uh, to reconcile sinners to God. That's what uh, defending the truth um, is and so uh, contending for the faith means defending God's truth from those who would seek to pervert and distort it. Now, those people who are seeking to pervert the gospel and and to attack the church um, can be called apostates. Now, I know it's not a very common word that we use very often. I was talking to a friend. And I said, yeah, on Sunday we're going to be talking about apostates. And he's like, apostates? My apostate's fine. I drink cran cranberry juice regularly. <laughs> I'm like, no, not that. And so, so an apostate uh, could be defined as any person who is an enemy of God within or without the church. This includes people who claim to believe in Christ but deny him by the way they live. These are false teachers who claim revelation from God, yet contradict the Bible. Wolves in sheep's clothing who become Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, and even pastors who seek authority only as a means to control, manipulate, and benefit from the sheep. It includes people who may sincerely think that they're Christians, but whose lives do not reflect that reality. So, Keep these in mind as we continue in our study of Jude, uh, of what contending for the faith means, and, and uh, we're going to use terms like the ungodly and false teachers all interchangeably for um, the, the sort of people that, we'll be, uh, that Jude is talking about. So, Lord willing, through this study, we'll have a greater understanding of what an apostate looks like, what fate awaits those who would deny Jesus as Lord, and lead others astray, and how to defend against ungodliness in the church and in our own hearts. Uh, 
And our prayer for us as a church, as we read, meditate on, and understand the words that God has spoken to us through Jude, is that we would grow in, in an awareness of our dependence upon God to preserve us and keep us both in this life and throughout all eternity. That we would be a people who are zealous and stand ready to defend the gospel against those who would seek to undermine it and, and attack it and, and proclaim the gospel to those who, who need to hear it. And finally, that we would examine our own hearts and test ourselves to see if we truly are believers as we claim to be. So let's go ahead and get started. In uh, verse 1 is a good a place as any to get started. So we start out in verse 1, and it says this, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. So the author here identifies himself right away, and he says, uh, this is Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, there were a lot of Judes um, in the Bible and, and also known as Judas, and so there's some debate about who this Jude is. But as far as we can tell, this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if this were me and I was riding to a church... You know, I'd do a little bit of a name dropping, right? You know, hey, you know, this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, you know, and, and yet Jude doesn't do that, right? He doesn't just flat out say, yeah, I'm the brother of Christ. No, he says, I'm the slave of Christ. And that reflects his humility and, and how Jesus was um, first his Lord and Savior and then his brother. That, that the most important way he related to Jesus was Jesus as his master. And that's very important for, for how Jude develops the rest of his letter. So he chooses each and every word carefully. And uh, every word that God inspired him to write has purpose and meaning. And so as we continue in verse 1, the second half, he says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. He describes his audience as called. Now, now this term called can be used in, in two different ways um, when it comes to salvation in the Bible. And the first one is God's general call to salvation for, for sinners to repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that call is sometimes rejected or ignored. Um, but what Jude is talking about is something deeper and, and a bit more mysterious. And Jude's use of the word called is referring to God's special internal call through which he awakens the human will and imparts spiritual life, enabling once dead sinners to embrace the gospel by faith. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is God's sovereign will in choosing a people to be his own and calling sinners to salvation. And when God gives this special internal call, it's effective and it brings those to salvation whom he calls. And so Jude sets his readers apart and shows that these are believers that Jude is talking to, that his audience, to the best of his knowledge, are saved. They are Christians. So, why else would, would Jude refer to them as called? The, 
as we study Jude and as we see him exhorting us to contend for the faith, to defend the gospel, to watch out for these false teachers, it, it might be easy for someone to think it's by our power and by our strength that we're going to root out these false teachers and that we're going to you know, hunt them down and purge God's church. And, and so perhaps the, Jude was clarifying that, that it's not by human will and it's not by our own strength that, that will defend his gospel and, and to cleanse his church. Jude's description stresses God's supernatural calling and reminds, its, reminds his readers that it's God who accomplishes their salvation and their sanctification. It's not based on human effort. And so it is not by our strength alone and, and not dependent on our strength at all that, that God will purify his church. That being said, it's not an excuse to be passive and, and do nothing. The emphasis on God's grace does not cancel out human responsibility. Later on in verse 21, Jude's going to exhort his readers to keep themselves in God's love. And, and God's grace does not promote human passivity and laxity. When false teachers attempt to lead people astray, when leaders seek to prey on and take advantage of the weak, when a professing believer continues to live in sin and unrepentance, the people of God should take action and do everything they can to protect the church, even if that means kicking these people out. And of course, in, in a loving uh, Matthew 18 fashion, uh, we should follow the biblical prescription. But the, the point stands that, that the believers have been given a mission by God and have uh, a specific course of action to take when these apostates, when these ungodly people attack the church from within and from without. So, this also doesn't mean that, that we should just go on a witch hunt, right, and hold trials to, to see who's an apostate and who's not, you know, to, to set up a, a council to hunt these people down. No, that mentality would show a distrust, right, in, in God's sovereignty and the fact that he's promised to uh, preserve and protect his people. The parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13, it's a perfect illustration of this tension here. It says this, Matthew 13, verse 24, it says, He put another parable before them. This is Jesus saying, The kingdom of heaven, of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Ultimately, the one who will purify his church of the ungodly, all the false teachers and all the fake Christians will be God himself. We should not be surprised that, that Jude is, is saying that there are false believers, there are false teachers among God's people. God in his sovereignty allowed them to be there. And just as we see in the parable, the, 
God is saying that if he were to pull out all the ungodly and all the wicked from out of the church, it would cause disruption and, and it would cause uh, believers to stumble and, and it, it was a sign that, that the weeds were there for the benefit of the wheat, that, that the unbelievers are, are in our midst and, and we have something to learn and to grow because of them. So, we should proactively defend against these people. As we grow in our understanding of Jude's letter, we will begin to see how to identify the apostates and what we should do about them. Uh, Just a quick note about verse 2. Again, Jude choosing his words very carefully. In verse 2, he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The order he chooses to put these words in is, is very significant because without... Mercy, we cannot have peace with God. In order to be made right with God, we first have to have been shown mercy and grace by God. Before we can experience the full love of God poured out in our hearts, He has to have given us grace to experience that. And so Jude uses uh, His word order very carefully. Let's go on to verse 3. Jude starts out with uh, setting the stage for the, the whole letter here in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude says, listen guys, I, I really wanted to write to you about our salvation. I, I was excited about talking about all uh, that it means to be in Christ and, and God's sovereignty in saving us and, and setting us apart and, and choosing us in Christ. And, and yet this issue came up and, and it was an issue he couldn't ignore. It, it was too great of an issue for him to just pass up and, and, and just tack on, you know, another letter. And so he changes his whole, fo- whole focus, he says, into talking about contending for the faith. So, let's look at verse 4. He tells us the reason why he appeals to us to contend for the faith is this in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. N- notice, he says, that, that certain people have crept in. Right? It wasn't a doubt in Jude's mind that these people were among his audience. Right? He knew that the, the people he was writing to had been infiltrated by these apostates. And, and he tells them that they've even come in unnoticed. That, that maybe the, the people hadn't fully realized that, that these wolves in sheep's clothing were among them. There was no question in his mind... Uh, that false teachers were among God's people. Like spies from Satan who have infiltrated enemy territory, these unwelcome guests seek to sabotage the church's mission and cripple its defenses. They are subtle, and many of them have gone unnoticed. He then uh, goes on in verse 4 to give a foreshadowing, uh, a little glimmer of light on the, the fate of those who are ungodly, those who would seek to sabotage the Lord's church. He reveals in verse 4, let's go on to read, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. God had set out beforehand that the ungodly, the the enemies of God, who who sought to, to tear down the church, would fail in their mission. In the end, they would be unsuccessful. 
They may win some battles along the way. They may make some people stumble and be ineffective. They may divide churches. They may shut some churches' doors. And, and they may cause a stain on the reputation and the name of the Lord. But in, but in the end, God will have his victory. In the end, the Lord will win. So a most necessary question would be, have these kinds of people invaded the church today? And Jude's going to go on to give three descriptions of these apostates, of these ungodly people. And so as we look at these three characteristics, just see for yourself and take a look at the state of our church and the state of uh, the nation and of of, uh, churches in mostly the Western culture and see, have these people invaded our churches as well? First, he describes their character. Look in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. Their character is ungodly. This is perhaps the most general term that, that Jude uses to refer to these people. He calls them ungodly, and he tells us that they... Um, they, his emphasis is not so much on their teachings and the false doctrines that they're purporting, but it's, it's on their character and it's on their conduct. And so he describes them as ungodly. They're men and women who only play at religion and have no true love for God or his people. For all intents and purposes, they are practical atheists who, according to Titus 1.16, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They do not and cannot truly worship God, regardless of the front they put up. Does it sound like a lot of people today? They claim to believe in God, and they claim to be a Christian, um, and they, they, you know, they live their lives in the church, and they go to Sunday school, and yet, all the while, by the way they live their lives, they prove that they are ungodly, and they deny Jesus as Lord. The second thing, he describes their conduct. And it's to pervert the grace of God. Continue in verse 4 with me. Uh, Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. These are people who use the grace of God as a license to sin. They say, since Christ has died for all my sins and taken all my punishment for sin, there's no more punishment left for me. And so now I can live how I want to. I can pursue the desires that that I want, and I can have freedom, quote-unquote, in Christ to, to live the way that, that feels good to me, and they pursue whatever fleshly desire they feel like. Believing they'll be just forgiven of sin, they proceed in secret, but when they're caught, what do they say? Oh, well, you know, God's a loving God. He'll forgive me, so, so it's okay. You know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, God, God wouldn't send anyone to hell, so he's, he's just a loving God. All the while, they lack true repentance and sorrow over their sin. Anyone who can abuse the idea of the grace of God in such a horrendous manner has never truly experienced the grace of God in their own hearts. That's the reality. Otherwise, they would never treat God's mercy in that way. Next thing Jude describes is their creed. Look in the last part of verse 4. Who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The ungodly apostates and false teachers will never accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They are their own masters. 
by indulging in, ev- in whatever feels good to them, by, by chasing after these worldly passions, they prove that Jesus Christ is not their Lord. There are many today who would propose that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. They, they would want all the benefits of salvation, but not the cost. They, they would say that, you know, add, add Jesus to your life. Rather than encouraging people to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow Jesus, they say just add Jesus to your life. You know, give him a special place in your heart, but certainly not the throne room. So their character is ungodly, their conduct is to pervert the grace of God, and their creed is to deny Jesus as Lord. So based on these three characteristics, I think it goes without saying that these people have actually invaded our churches, and there very well may be some of them within these walls in our own church. There are some who deny Jesus as Lord by the way they live their life. There are some who who are ungodly and who do not submit to Christ as Lord. Jude goes on in verse 5. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. He starts to remind them of three examples of God's judgment of the ungodly, God's judgment of the apostates. And so he starts out by saying, Uh, he wants to remind them of these things. Now, every example Jude gives is going to be extremely familiar to his readers, and, and they know what he's talking about. So it's not as though he's saying, because you've forgotten these things, um, but he was reminding them um, so that they might wake up to the reality of false teachers and unbelievers in their company. He writes to them so that they, uh, because they might have began to become cold and unawares that these false teachers had, had infiltrated their church. And maybe they grew complacent and thought of God's severe treatment of wickedness as stories of old, dismissed it as mere legend. Jude, Jude intervenes to renew a sense of urgency and sober thinking to this sleepy church. He gives these examples not to tell of some far-off event that happened a long time ago, but to tell how the unchanging judge of the universe deals with his enemies, even today. So let's look at these three examples of God's judgment. So the first thing we see is through Israel's example, we see that God's judgment is thorough. In verse 5, it says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, God had his chosen people yet they had been enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. And God's plan was to step into the scene of history and in a miraculous and awesome display of his power, rescue them from their captors and lead them to freedom. And yet, what happened? After the miracles, after Pharaoh's army was defeated and they're wandering in the wilderness, they start to get complacent and they start to grumble and they start to complain. And soon enough, almost every single one of them turned their backs on their rescuer. They became ungrateful and embittered. And in righteous judgment, God destroyed those who did not believe in him. Numbers 14, 26 through 35 gives a really chilling account of their disobedience and God's punishment. Uh, Numbers 14, 26, you can listen to it. It says this, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. And your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. Let that serve as an example of anyone who thinks that uh, they're exempt from God's judgment. Realize that God deals with sin seriously. Israel's example shows us that God's punishment begins in his own home. Not only will God punish the world and, and have every single person stand before him, but he will also purge and cleanse his own people. All those who claim to be called by his name, all those who claim to be Christians, each and every one of us will stand before God and our works and our life will be put to the test. Just because those people were born as Israelites, even rescued from Egypt and led through the desert, did not guarantee they were true part of the people of God. Relying on their heritage and their association with God's people did not guarantee that they were true believers. Paul explains this in Romans 9, 6. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Even back then, only the Israelites who believed in God and trusted in him through faith were his true followers. And so it is the truth today. We cannot presume upon the grace of God as though we're exempt from God's judgment, right? We think because we go to church, because we grew up in a Christian home or we gave our money to the poor and, and we call ourselves a Christian, that in no way guarantees that we are truly believers. Only turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus as your master and savior can truly guarantee that you are part of God's people. Jude goes on in verse 6 to give the second example of God's judgment, and it's of the fallen angels. And their example shows us that God's judgment is certain. In verse 6 it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It's most likely that Jude's referring to these angels um, that the stories accounted in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And, and in this account, the, the angels of God, it says that they went down to dwell among uh, men and they slept with women, humans, and, and they produced this offspring. And, and it was a disgrace and, and just a horrendous, heinous crime and they overstepped their bounds, like Jude says, that they didn't stay where they were supposed to. They left God's perfect design for them and traded it for, for their own pleasures and their own designs. And so what happens? God's judgment is swift and certain. Un unlike Satan and his 
angels, his demons, who are allowed to roam free for a time, these angels, Jude says, were locked away immediately. They were put under chains, he says in verse 6, immediately. Uh, apparently, their sin was so uh, egregious to God that he put them in chains and locked them away for, for judgment. This respect reflects the seriousness and certainty of God's judgment on the ungodly in every age, even today. He does not take sin lightly, and as Jude mentioned before, the judgment of the wicked has been set out long ago by God himself, and nothing short of repenting and trusting in Jesus will avert this fate. God's judgment is coming, and there's nothing that can stop it. He will judge the ungodly. The next one, example that Jude gives, is Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah's example show us that God's judgment is severe. That God's judgment is severe. Just like the angels, right? They did the same thing. They exchanged what God had designed and planned for them, and they traded it for their own design. They, they traded God's natural order of one man and one woman and traded it for a male and a male and a female and female and indulged in, in every desire that they wished. And, and so just like the angels, they, lo- they forgot their place and took their pleasures into their own hands. The hard truth is that judgment is coming for the wicked. Jude makes it clear that God does not mess around with sin. One day God's going to call each and every person to give an account of their sin and their life. And each and every person will stand before God. The Bible says, for all have sinned. That means every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The severity of God's punishment is beyond imagining. These the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were an example of those who would suffer under eternal fire. So anyone who would take God's judgment and God's punishment lightly or flippantly is a fool because God's judgment will be severe. Some people think they're going to have a, a party in hell, right? You know, the, someone was talking the other day and um, they were saying some stuff and one guy's like, well, you know, you're going to lead us all to hell. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm driving the bus. You know, that's, that's the mentality that some people have, that, that yeah, hell's not going to be that bad, and, you know, it's just going to be, you know, continuing what we're doing here, and we're just going to party up. But the reality is that it will be anything but that. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31 shows that the severest punishment awaits those who know the truth of the gospel, yet reject it. It says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I'd caution you this morning, you've heard the gospel if you've heard the gospel and yet have rejected Jesus, there remains no other hope for you beyond Jesus. If you've rejected the one thing that can lead to your salvation, I would plead with you to reconsider. God is going to punish, and rightfully so, 
every single person and, and, and every single ungodly person, which includes all of us. But that's not where it stops. Thank the Lord that there's good news beyond this. You see, God did not choose to leave us in this sad state to face his judgment. He chose to provide a way that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, a way that we could be made right with God. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who became a man and, and who, was, who was God become a man, who lived the perfect life that we could never live and, and who died on a cross and he went to that cross willingly as a substitute for you and me. He took on the sin and he took on the punishment that we deserved. And he took the full wrath of God and he, he died and he took that to the grave. But God raised him from the dead and gave him victory over sin and death. And now he stands in victory and, and, and holding the keys to death. And he stands and says, come to me. He says, if you repent of your sins, if you turn away from your sin and no longer trust in yourself, but you believe in what Jesus did on the cross and receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. So Jude has given us the description of the apostates and he's given us the doom of the apostates. So knowing now what an apostate looks like and what fate awaits them, how is it that we can defend against these apostates? What is it that we can do as God's church to, to defend the gospel and to stand up for his truth? How is it that we're going to defend God's truth vigorously and continually against his enemies? There's three things we can do. First thing is to examine the scriptures. In verse 3, Jude already gave us the answer. He, he tells us to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The, the very words that, that God inspired the apostles to write and, and the revelation that God gave to them and they handed down those teachings and over the years have been preserved by God and His sovereignty and have arrived to us in the form of the Bible. This is God's Word. This is His infallible, perfect and holy word, and it is our defense against apostates and false teachers. And the best way to defend against them is to be equipped with the word of God. It should be on our hearts, it should be on our minds, and it should be on our lips. Uh, the other night, we were sitting around talking about uh, a scripture or, or something about God, and uh, one of our friends who's uh, regular in our home, he's like, man, why are you guys always talking about Jesus? You're always saying something about the Bible and about, you know, Jesus. And he's like, don't you guys ever, you know, talk about something else? And we're just like, no, no not really, <laughs> you know. And, and Mr. Herb said, you know, well, that's just what we do as Christians. You know, we talk about the things of God, and we, we, we enjoy speaking the Word of God to each other and, and learning God's Word. And so, Apart from Scripture, we have no defense against these wolves in sheep's clothing, and we're apt to follow every wind of doctrine that pops up. How are we to know what's false and what's true if we don't read the Word of God? How are we to know who we should listen to and who we should reject? 
if we don't know the Scriptures. We should be like Timothy when Paul tells him to follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That good deposit is the Word of God. We should guard that in our own lives and we should examine the Scriptures and hold fast and know what we believe and why believe it. The second one is to exercise wisdom and discernment. Using our knowledge of the Word of God, we shouldn't just blindly follow everything we're taught. Let's wake up to the reality that that Satan has his agents, and they're doing everything they can to lead us astray. They even may be in these walls. We should know what we believe and why we believe it, and we should be so saturated with Scripture that we know when a false teaching comes up. By God's grace, we have a wonderful pastor, am I right, that, that teaches us in God's Word and instructs us faithfully in the Word of God. But yet we're still so bombarded by all these messages from the world and, and all these different things that come at us and, and fighting for our attention and fighting for our hearts. So we need to, to be on guard. We need to be discerning and wise and, and crafty, you know, Realizing that not everyone out there is, is there for our benefit. You know, not every pastor who's on the radio or on TV, they're not necessarily from the Lord just because they have their own radio program or because they're on TBN, maybe especially because they're on TBN. But we should examine everything and we should put everything to the test and not just follow blindly. Just because a song is on Caleb doesn't necessarily mean it's theologically rich that it's, that it's accurate. We should put it to the test. You know, and, and people are like, oh man, can't you just listen to the song or just listen to this guy? And it's like, no, I can't. Because God's word comes first. And if it doesn't line up with God's word, then, then we shouldn't have it anywhere near us. So we should examine the scriptures, exercise wisdom and discernment. And finally, we should examine ourselves. Since we know what apostates look like, and what fate awaits those who would deny the Lord Jesus, and knowing that his judgment begins in his very house with his own people, we should put our lives to the test to see if our true motivation will be revealed. 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, to help us out, there's two main tests that we can put ourselves through. The first is to ask ourselves, do we confess Christ as Lord and Savior? And the second one is, do we obey God's word and love others? Now, this is very simple and very basic. And, and if you're struggling to, to know whether you're saved or not, and if you're unsure and you need some, some assurance and some guidance, come to Pastor Graham to the elders, and, and, and there's people in this church who want to help you and want to, to help you to grow because God doesn't want us wondering whether or not we're saved. He doesn't want us doubting if we're truly his children. This test of ourselves is meant to, to inspire us and to give us confidence. So we should ask ourselves these two questions and test ourselves with the scriptures. And as we continue to study Jude, I would challenge you to put yourself to the test. Don't think, man, I wish so-and-so could be here. 
You know, oh, man, I'm glad, I'm glad he's here because he really needed to hear this. No, no. Genuinely seek the Lord to reveal to you as to whether or not you are saved, that you are his child, or maybe you're the one of those who are self-deceived, those to whom Jesus will say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't let that be you. Examine yourself and test yourself. Read the scriptures. And as we study Jude, look at your own heart and see, is this me? Have I done these things? Am I truly a child of God? And, and in closing, as you examine yourself, like I said before, it's, it's not meant to scare you. There, there's three results of examining yourself. You can either become paralyzed with fear and wondering whether or not you're a child of God, and you can let it cripple you and, and become ineffective and, and just hole up and do nothing for the Lord. Or you can become proud and think, man, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, look at me. I'm up here preaching in front of the church. Look, look how great I am, and look how you know, well I'm doing. You know, That's not how we should examine ourselves. That's not what it should result in. It should result in perseverance. It should result in us buckling down and contending for the gospel, to knowing that we are saved, knowing that we are God's children, and guarding against apostasy in our own hearts. We should take a stand and defend the gospel, and and it should cause us to to fall onto the grace of God with just absolute dependence upon His grace to see us through and to carry us through. And that's our prayer as we continue to study Jude, that we would grow to know that it is God who will preserve us and protect us, but that we should proactively defend the gospel and defend the church against those who would seek to destroy it.